Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lotus Lori Kang. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago is presenting Atrium Project Lotus Lori Kang, a large-scale installation in the MCA's two-story entrance lobby. Kang's work, titled Molt, New York, Lethbridge, Los Angeles, Toronto, Chicago, hangs from the atrium ceiling. To make it, Kang exposed to natural light in all of the cities I listed a moment ago, lengths of light-sensitive, unfixed photographic film, resulting in colors that evoke the body and landscape. Lotus root-shaped chimes made of cast aluminum and bronze hang along these light-sensitive surfaces. The presentation is curated by Jack Schneider. The work will be on view through February 11, 2024. Kang's work is also at London's Chisenhale Gallery in a solo presentation titled In Cascades. It's up through July 30th. Kang's work often blends sculpture, photography, and installation in address of bodies, memories, and histories and how they all change over time. Kang has been featured in exhibitions at the Hessel Museum of Art at Bard College and in the 2021 Triennial at New York's New Museum. On the second segment, Adeline Kent. But first, Lotus Laurie Kang, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago's Atrium Project invites artists to respond to the museum's entrance with the new large-scale work. In the newest Atrium Project, Lotus Lori Kang continues her exploration of entropy and continual becoming, exploring the relationship between time, personal history, and cultural knowledge. Plan your trip to visit the MCA and see Kang's new Atrium Project at mca.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Lotus Lori Kang, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with photograms, which you started making in high school. A photogram is the chemical preservation of a shadow on a piece of paper. The, the first photographic negatives were photograms. Photograms are the oldest thing in photography. 
And in many ways, photograms are the opposite of recent works such as Molt at the MCA Chicago, which we'll talk about a little bit. You've made photograms for a long time. What about them, I guess, first interested you? And then given that you've been playing with them for like 20 years, why did they hold your interest? Yeah, I guess the first photograms I made were in high school. I kind of hopped between a few different high schools as a teenager. I was pretty rebellious and even took a year off of school only to eventually settle. I thought I would like never kind of finish going through an educational system. And then I eventually came back to school, but found this kind of like an alternative education program that allows students to like make their own schedules, essentially. So I was already drawn to crafts and arts and anything that was kind of tactile and hands-on. And so I spent my entire school days, a lot of the time in the school's dark room because they had a pretty strong arts program. And it was there that, you know, it became this, it's literally a dark room. It's kind of, I think, a very great place for an emo teenager to get their feelings out and to kind of hide away from the world. I mean, looking back on it now and thinking about that, my draw my draw to things like photograms or like, you know, indexing an object or indexing the absence of an object or objects, it probably relates to my ongoing kind of alignment with collage as a medium and collage as a medium that I kind of see as a lens through for all of my work in a sense, in that it's very much so about non-singularity, about arrangement and arrangement as a kind of, not as a kind of, you know, someone might think of something that has this kind of provisional quality that can be taken apart as, you know, indecision or a lack of fortitude or something, but I'm actually quite interested in the kind of inherent reiterability that collage either literally offers or points towards. And so I think photograms are a kind of collage in that sense. Do you want the stuff represented in your photographs, and I'm talking about the ones you make these days, to be recognizable or is a certain or occasional illegibility conceptually important? I think it's a mix. If you're referring to photograms like Guts, for example, which is an ongoing body of work that I've been making since maybe 2015, I want to say, which is, yeah, it's an ongoing series of work called Guts. They're photograms made in the natural light of whatever studio space I'm in rather than in a dark room in a traditional sense. So they're not black and white, but they're more tones of brown, sometimes purple, beige. And then I'll add some darkroom chemicals here and there or other kind of volatile liquids like acid from oranges or or this kind of thing or, you know, the acidic juices of oranges. And I think that whole body of work is really a kind of drawing practice for me. And it's a way for me to kind of index the this like what I think of as this ongoing archive of debris in my studio. So, and if the studio is an extension of the artist's body, then it's also an ongoing archive of my own body or the debris around my body. So there's a lot of like scraps of things, scraps from sculptural processes, like making silicone and clay. There's trash. There's things that I find on the street. There's parts of sculptures 
there's whole sculptures that are kind of used in the photogram process and then placed in another work eventually it, it really feels like this kind of emptying inside out of my studio space and I find that when I'm making it going back to like legibility of objects I tend to be drawn to the things that are less legible myself and some of the earlier photograms were really quite alien and I think they felt so alien to me also so I like having things that are still legible at times because it gives this perception of familiarity while then also like defamiliarizing that object for the viewer at the same time. But my tendency is to go for things that are pretty formless and illegible. And usually the things that I add in there that are kind of legible as objects after the photogram is made, I don't usually like it at first. And I think I feel like it's too obvious or it's too straightforward. But I think it's because this is kind of like an ongoing practice. I think it's interesting to keep the different range of legibilities or readability of objects within this like ongoing series. I'm glad you brought up guts because one of the things about that body of work, if we can call it or if I can call it a body of work, is that whether you intend it or not, and I think you do, stuff appears to be moving. There is a suggestion of things being captured as they are moving across a field, which I think is a little bit related to how, you know, a work such as Molt might move when someone opens a door. You know, we think of photograms as being fixed, fixed, fixed. Is that movement important to you in general or not at all or only in the photograms or dot 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 yeah I think the movement is super important and especially in something like the photogram works which are fixed you know they with that body of work in particular if I remove the objects and didn't fix it and kind of left the paper forevermore then over time the imprints they leave would disappear which is not uninteresting but you know photographic paper is actually quite an incredible technology in terms of like the range of colors, the depth of colors, just the different, what I found is like, you know, when I put metal against the photo paper and if it's hot in my studio in the summer and humid, it creates like this like pinkish purplish hue. So there's like a, a temperature reaction as, as well, like a thermal quality. So I'm interested in bringing that out and definitely with guts, it's less about composing an image than it is more about like trying to image a state of as the title points to a state of you know like of either metabolization or regurgitation a, a transformation an interior transformation and so that work I don't think I've it's been a long time since I've tried to make a photogram that functions more like like an Anna Atkins or something yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of indexing these objects that become something else through that process. Like it's not at all to, they're not evidence of something more than they are. If anything, they're evidence of, of movements, I guess, because once those things, this is why it feels like a drawing practice. It's kind of like drawing my studio in a way and then those things disperse they get thrown out they get reused and elsewhere and other objects or installations yeah and movement is definitely important in the more sculptural or spatial works as well like molt as you mentioned the films which 
definitely move as a body creates, you know, as a body moves through space, the air kind of, it's cutting through air. So there's this feeling of these things not being still. They aren't still materially. And then they're physically also able to kind of express what they are as materials. Well, let's pivot to talking about molt and other works of yours, which use unfixed film, stuff like celluloid, works which where you, 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 you expose material to light repeatedly without fixing images, just allowing that material to capture and recapture and change, which is in a lot of ways the opposite of a photogram. Photograms fix images and your works with unfixed film, film that is, you know, continuously sensitive to light, don't fix images. So I want to understand a little bit about, or I want to try to understand a little bit about where these works with unfixed film come from. And I'm not sure if the right way to begin to understand that is to ask when you became interested in photography or perhaps when you became uninterested in image-based photography. Yeah, I think that my, you know, when I eventually went to art school after high school, I was and even within high school, when I was spending days in the dark room, I was equally spending days like learning how to make plaster molds of my face and my hand, you know, in that very straightforward way. And so when I did my undergrad, I was taking painting classes all throughout as I was sculpture classes, textile art classes. So I've always had a very tactile approach to art making and the world. And then I got interested in photography more in undergrad, I think because, I don't know, maybe it's not so interesting a story, but the school that I went to didn't offer much in terms of not necessarily support, yes, support, but also like a kind of rigor within the painting department or the sculpture department. And then there was this medium of photography, which you kind of had to learn all these rules in order to, you know, print a color image. And, you know, color printing has a lot in common with painting in that you have to learn color theory and learning how to balance an image, learning how to see cool and warm tones and all of these things. And so I got really drawn to the photo department because it offered more kind of rigidity and, you know, you kind of need rigidity in order to have something to push against and kind of experiment with. Whereas when there is no structure at all, I don't know, you kind of need the opposite there. At least that's how I feel in order to, you need a structure to push against or to expand something beyond that structure. So I was really drawn to like these structural kind of components of photography and stayed with it for a while. And my undergrad work was really thinking about like constructed images and not trying to, you know, in that very maybe cliche way of trying to like remove this supposed objectivity of the photographer or the image by very consciously constructing images with my own body or with my body evidenced in some way. And I think that you know, the way that it just kind of expanded from there. I was still interested in sculpture. I kind of dropped off of painting, but the relationship between sculpture and photography remained really important to me. And I, you know, I kept a practice going. It was very experimental. 
after undergrad, I didn't have access to a dark room. So I just started doing things in the space of my studio and natural light. And actually the way the film started coming into my life was an accident, which I'm sure I'm not the only artist who has ever said this to you, but <laughs> all, all good art is kind of the result of a series of encounters or accidents. And I used to go to this like photo developing place in Toronto where I used to live and kind of ask them like, hey, what do you have that's expired? What do you have that is like off cut or, you know, kind of collect the debris of their industrially sized photo papers. And so they would call me and be like, hey, we have this, you can come pick it up. And one day they called me and said, hey, we found an entire roll of photo paper that's unexposed, still in the black bag, but it's completely expired. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, I'll be there. And I picked it up. It was much heavier than photo paper. And so I kind of immediately knew it was something else. And I brought it back to my studio, opened it up. And it was this like, yeah, very like wet looking, vinyl-y looking, dark purple, brownish, reddish material that's double-sided and kind of differently toned and textured on each side. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and so, and then it kind of just, you know, it unfolded from there. I now have to actively source that material, but I've figured out that different brands of the film kind of create different tones. Yeah, that's, that's that origin story of the film. <laughs> was that Toronto Imageworks? It was. It was Toronto Imageworks, actually. And years later, Ed Bertinsky, who founded and owns Toronto Imageworks, funded an, or helped fund an acquisition of a work of yours at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I love that origin story. How important within your interest in expired film or celluloid or, or, or film that you know, you're playing with and implementing, how important to you is its materiality? What are some of the things about its materiality that matter to you? Yeah, I guess what I'm interested in with materials and materiality is, you know, you'll see, probably notice in my work that there's a real sense of the body without the body really being present. And my own interest in thinking about the body or our bodies as extending beyond our skins in both like a kind of like in a quantum manner as much as a physical manner we're like not contained by these borders of our skin we kind of leak into the environment i'm interested in how the materials around us can kind of reflect and highlight that as well so with the film, I very much so think of it as skin. And when I expose it, I call it tanning rather than exposing it. And then, you know, if I'm having a studio visit or introducing someone to my work for the first time, I'll keep saying tanning, tanning, and they're so confused. <laughs> because I don't, I don't even introduce it as within the medium of photography. Not that I'm not interested in that. I think I'm maybe going back to the like formless formlessness, like attraction that I have when I'm making the photograms, I think I'm, I start from a pretty unformed place. So I, I, I go straight to the materiality, like this is unfixed, this is continually sensitive. And I tanned it in my studio, I tanned it in a greenhouse. These tan lines appear because of XYZ. So it very much so is 
a way to think about the materiality of our bodies through these other materials and objects that I'm really interested in staying with. And, and yeah, of course, there's like the kind of implications within the medium of photography, what it means to not fix something, what it means to have to image something that is, you know, with the film specifically, I think about them as many things. One of the thing I, things I think about them as images that are both imaging themselves as well as the environment and people around them. So I'm interested in that and then also interested on the more kind of like outside of the medium of photography, the kind of like social implications of what it means for these things to be expressing this kind of inherent ongoing volatility. And, and, and I think maybe also as part of that, that especially when you're implementing, say, 20 or 25 pieces of film as you do in molt that you know people have to move around to see it which also introduces another kind of form of potential sociability taking maybe molt as an example how much control do you exert over color and how much is what a viewer sees in a work like molt simply natural processes acting in ways you unleash but cannot control yeah i try and that's a nice question because i always do try and find a balance between this idea that the image makes itself as well as not removing, you know, my own subjectivity, my own body from the process and trying to let the kind of inherent qualities of the material come out. Like, I guess, trying to create the conditions for that and shape those conditions, maybe nurture the conditions, not control them necessarily, but nurturing the conditions around for these inherent characteristics that might be super sensitive or you could describe as volatile or temporal to kind of be highlighted as much as possible. So the colors, I guess you could say they are out of my control, but of course I chose that material and I choose when to stop tanning the film in front of my studio window Last summer, in lieu of kind of tanning them in my studio against window panes, as I normally do, I had an idea to create a greenhouse as a studio. And so built this greenhouse and had a friend who allowed me to use his organic farm as a spot. So yeah, the greenhouse sat in the middle of a field of buckwheat, which is, you know, I didn't ask for a field of buckwheat, but it became this very serendipitous thing where, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, but with the photographic works, as well as my other works, I think a lot about themes like memory and inheritance and what sediments and what is both seen and unseen in a body. And my own personal history involves my paternal grandmother, who had a shop in Seoul selling grains and seeds. And she opened that shop after she fled North Korea to South Korea. So there's this kind of trace of her in in this field of buckwheat, which buckwheat is a very ubiquitous Korean grain. And then my own greenhouse that I built, which is another space of care or nurture or kind of becoming with. And the film that was tanned in there was in some ways very controlled, but then in some ways really not. There were leaks in the greenhouse that kind of imparted these 
water drop like forms more abstract blobs onto the film light became really sculptural because it was hitting you know the film from all directions rather than just from one pane like the window pane style of tanning that I do so I would say it's as much as I want to say I'm, I have no control of it of course I'm still driving the conditions but even the conditions themselves are leaky so I kind of like that as well I'm beginning to think you keep word lists. I do. <laughs> I do. Why do you keep word lists? I guess they're kind of, I, it's, well, it's more of a note in my phone that is title ideas, but it's essentially a word list. And yeah, so the last thing I typed in my phone was the phrase genetic trash. And I was reading about eDNA or environmental DNA, this idea that it's not an idea. I mean, it's a science that looks at the DNA debris that we leave in the environment as humans and other all other non-human species as well. So, you know, we think of ourselves as these contained beings, even at the core, uh, the foundational level of our DNA, but we're so leaky in that way. So that was the last thing I wrote in my ongoing title idea or word list. And I think because they've really become these kind of parameters in which it's kind of like laying down a foundation that other ideas or works can kind of sprout out from. It makes listening to you talk about the work all the more interesting because there is clearly a lot of intentionality in a lot of the words you're using. And as a writer, I find that kind of thing really interesting. Are you interested in the possibility that a viewer might find within a work like Molt recognizable stuff, especially recognizable stuff from art history, like a horizon line or the suggestion of a sunset or reflection or a grid from a window support? Yeah, I am. And I'm always amazed when I see that, you know. However, I never want to direct that. A lot of the newer tanned film works do have a very kind of horizon line quality to them as much as they look like I don't know if you've ever seen certain kind of DNA sequencing diagrams but they're these striated colorful patterns that I have no idea how to read but I've always found them fascinating so they point both to this kind of exterior landscape as well as these interior landscapes which I'm interested in and then the ones that kind of index my windows or even the ones tanned in the greenhouse, you can see like the slightest diagonal line where the structure of the greenhouse, the roof imprinted itself onto the film as well. Uh, so I think, let me interrupt for a quick second. I think you can see that diagonal line in at least one or two of the panels, if that's the right word, in molt. Yeah, yeah, you can see that diagonal line. And, you know, a viewer won't be like, well, that's a greenhouse, which I love, you know, that the things that we carry aren't always legible or traceable in a clear narrative way. And as that work changes at the MCA, you know, it's a duration of almost a year. I have no idea how much it will or won't change. Those traces may disappear, but they're still held at a more material quantum level by the film. So I'm, I'm interested in that kind of appearance and disappearance and, legibility and illegibility. And I do also, I, I don't know, I guess it's just my personality, but I have a desire to 
resist guiding a viewer there to say, this is my studio window, because then they're like, oh, okay, I, I see an image of the studio, got it. And because of my interest in materiality and embodiment over representation and imagery, I think it's more interesting to kind of let a viewer find that for themselves. However, I will say that right now I'm in the process of, I say that, you know, outward facingly, but in my mind, I have all these short names for certain pieces of film. And so I'm in the process of installing a new installation at Chisholm Hill Gallery in London. And a big part of this install has involved moving around many different sheets of film and kind of choosing which ones. I archived all the film that I've tanned and like have short names for where they were tanned, how long they were. And so we've been moving things around and I keep for some reason, me and the curator have come up with like nicknames that, you know, <laughs> like she keeps calling them all he and she's like, you should move him. And I'm like, what's going on? And then she'll be, be like, let's move this one. She's like, which one? I'm like the Rothko. And, and it, um, so it just comes out. However, I would never I'm not interested in on a like framing it that way. But of course, of course, it's in my mind. I, I, there are a couple of elements of a couple of your works I've even thought of as Norman Zamets. So one can go, go from like the super famous to the more regionally, more regionally known. When you work with celluloid or unfixed film, sometimes you allow it to curl at the bottom as in molt. And sometimes in works like Great Shuttle, which was a work that you installed in the New Museum Triennial in New York in 2021, you don't allow the material to curl, you know, you, you, you nail it down, so to speak. Why do you let the curl in? Why did, why is the curl important? I think it depends. Yeah. If it's the film on its own or the film skin to some kind of scaffold or skeleton material, I think that on a formal level, there's like a tension that's created when it's like the film is like, oof, like really just kind of tight to the steel at New Museum, for example, although there were areas where if you look close, the, it wasn't right at the corner, you would still see the material doing what the material wants to do. But really finding that tension between the materials is interesting to me, like working with the hardness of steel and the flexibility of the film and trying to bring out both those qualities through one gesture of a magnet that holds them together. And then when the film is suspended it kind of feels like simple is best like just let it do what it does and at MCA you know those film the film gets transported rolled in a tube so a lot of the work that I do has this inherent compactability or portability to it which is something I'm really interested in I often think about this term soft monumentality that's also on my word list in relation to my work this idea that something that's large and imposing and can really take up space has this inherent collapsibility and reiterability in it. But the works at MCA were transported in these tubes. And so, you know, the longer they sit in a tube, the more this kind of curl is encouraged. And me and the curator were wondering if we should try and relax the curl and ultimately we decided not to. And I feel very happy with that decision because again, it just is a way to 
show a material in as raw a state as possible, which is that kind of rawness is something I'm really always trying to find and 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 like highlight somehow. When I see that curl, I think of how you talk about the work as being skin and how skin ages and sags and does stuff. It feels to me like there's, as a viewer, not saying you have to answer to this or anything, but just as a viewer, that's one of the things I get out of it. I think I've been thinking about not necessarily aging, but entropy more and with entropy. Yeah, that's a better word. Yeah, like there's a there's a melancholic aspect to it that I hadn't, you know, wasn't really present in my mind for a number of years, but it's become much more present for some reason. I'm sure my own porosity to the current state of like the world and our environment is affecting that. And I recently had a curator, Lola Kramer, in my studio who described the film as images on fire. And that really has stuck with me. Another one that's on my word list in terms of like their, yeah, their real kind of entropic state that they're in and the volatility and the kind of both intimacy to the environment that they are witness to and that they kind of image as well as an intimacy is also kind of a volatility at the same time. And so that, yeah, the, the kind of aging or the moving towards death or moving towards a new cycle is something that I've been thinking about more in the work, but wasn't always there. What is your 2021 sculpture origin gate cast from and why have you offered it? If that's the right phrase, both in standalone form, as you know, a sculpture titled Origin Gate, and within an installation such as, or at least a version of it, within an installation such as Molt. Origin Gate is made of cast aluminum, and the aluminum casts were produced from lotus root segments that I cut from tubers, dried, and then those were 3D scanned and enlarged to become much larger than, you know, a regular lotus tuber size. So they have this kind of scale, strange shift thing happening and then suspended in space in the form of this wind chime that's full of holes. So you were asking about that in relation to origin. Yeah, I was, I mean, so you've done that and made that object both as a standalone sculpture as boom, here it is. But you've also used it within other works, such as within Molt. And why do you like it both ways? Why do you like using and reusing? Yeah, I think that the more you use something, whether it's a material, an image, or a form, a figure as an artist, the more there is to understand. And it keeps revealing itself more and more to you. My initial interest in the lotus root was through you know, having a history of eating it a lot as a child. So my own resistance to kind of convey clear cut picture of my own body or my own identity and resisting representation, essentially, or complicating ideas of representation, things like foods that I was familiar with that I had metabolized and digested and transformed in my body numerous times growing up became free-for-alls for me to use in the studio as like another tool and the lotus root I was drawn to as a form I think it's beautiful 
it's it was familiar to me. So there was that, but also the lotus root is a tuber that is deep in the mud of a body of water. And it's a horizontal figure and it's a rhizomatic figure. And for me, the lotus root is the flower, is the mud, is the water, is the all the species around it that kind of contribute to the mud. It's kind of this embodiment of a cycle of, of cycles and many other bodies. And also I'm interested in this idea that something that's full of holes is what creates strong infrastructure. And this is proven, you know, like I've read papers that show engineers kind of really studying the form of lotus roots and trying to like they basically replicated various lotus root like forms to test the like test the infrastructural strength, test how how much hydrostatic pressure could be applied from the outside. And it turns out that the more holes an object has, the stronger it becomes to a certain point, of course. The irony of this paper and or the, you know, toxic part of this paper is that they then go to say, so, you know, when we're thinking about creating more pipelines for extracting oil and blah, 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 we should really think about the lotus root, which is awful. But I guess I'm interested in this idea of lack or emptiness or or holes and porosity as a kind of as a strength, as something that is you think something that is actually more solid in that sense. I think I'm understanding why there are so many round forms in the photograms in the Numi work, uh, the title of which I'm forgetting at the moment, Great Shuttle. But but speaking of, of Great Shuttle while, while we're there, you know, I think of a lot of your work as containing opposites within it, not only kind of some art historical opposites, like I tend to think you're like pretty much the opposite of Richard Serra. <laughs> But even within like your oeuvre, so Molt is kind of in some ways an opposite of Great Shuttle. Molt hangs and is allowed to do its thing, whereas Great Shuttle is, you know, on, on, on a kind of an aluminum armature, if you will. It includes metal infrastructure that recalls like an, a, a standalone wall or a screen. It's rigid, it's exact, whereas Molt is free and almost maybe literally flowing. What is for you the difference between those modes of making rigid and free and why do you clearly make a point of embracing and using them both? Yeah, I think maybe this goes back to my thing about why I was drawn to photography because it was offered a structure that I could push against. I think the more something is rigid, the more at least on a, you know, artistic formal material maker level, the more you can kind of convey a sense of like a a freedom with it or a kind of pushing against that and vice versa. So in some ways, yes, there are many opposites in my work, but I think that those opposites often dissolve into and out of each other, whether they're binaries of inside and outside, front and back, hard and soft, like very simple you know, very kind of foundational binaries. And I think, too, that to move between works that feel more kind of rigid and structured and works that feel more scattered and loose is a way for me to really think about this 
continual loop or a cycle that's always in a state of kind of building up, breaking down, rebuilding, building up, breaking down, rebuilding. And that is also, I think, conveyed in my interest in both things that are horizontal and floor bound and then also vertical and kind of, yeah, upright. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but now that you mention it, you know, the floor mounted pieces are rooted in something down below while the, while molt and other works hang from, from down above. And that's, yeah, that's kind of an opposite. From the dumb questions file, you use stainless steel bowls a lot. Why do stainless steel bowls interest you? I think it starts again with the, like, it's similar to the lotus root thing of, you know, this is a bowl that I'm familiar with as a tool often used in fermenting foods or making kimchi, but on a formal level and kind of when expanded to an industrial scale, there's, again, this kind of defamiliarization that happens there's an abstraction of the body that happens, whether I'm, you know, if I'm, if you're thinking about the body as a vessel and then this vessel becomes a stand-in for the body, but also because they're super reflective, you see your own body abstracted in the reflection and it presents a moving image as you move around the form as well. So we have movement, we have movement as being important again. Yes, exactly. And yeah, yeah, they really do present moving images of the things inside of them, but also of, you know, the bodies around them as they move around. So so is it important to you that unfixed film is a receptacle for light that changes just as the bowls are a receptacle? Is is there a a a a Venn diagram where receptability or receiving matters? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The figure of the vessel or the receiver is a really big one in my work. And I often say to people, like, all I do is make vessels, whether you think of these bowls that are literal vessels and much more obviously so, or the film as this kind of porous surface form. It's not just surface, it's surface and form that is a vessel or receiver. But I think I'm indebted to people like Trinti Minha who talk about like this act of both receiving and transmitting. So I don't think of the vessel as just this kind of passive receptive space, but you know, even though they're a structure, like the structure of a wall made of building material is also a vessel that at a certain level, they're also transmitting at the same time. I think there's another opposite here, right? In the sense that the stainless steel bowls, which you wield in room-sized installations, are rather indestructible, whereas unfixed film, you know, could tear and will change, and photograms can be ripped. That there's a that there's another, you know, kind of polarity there. We've talked a lot about materials without really kind of talking about how you select them. So you've used materials as unlike as mesh fruit bags and, and those stainless steel bowls and fungus in installation, silicone to paint cans, cabbage leaf, thread magnets. Look, I'm doing a word list too. <laughs> all, all kinds of stuff. And, and you've wielded it all with a kind of post-minimal elegance that's really visually and almost sensually attractive. Is there a Kang material, something that makes an object, something that fits within what you make and want to present. Is there like one single material? Is there like a unity across the materials you choose to use? 
Yeah, I I feel like I've been asked this kind of thing before, and it's. I feel like my answer feels dumb, but all I can say is like, it's just attraction. And I think actually the smarter thing I've learned to say, or the more kind of with time, what I'm understanding is that (laughs) (laughs) art is always ahead of you as an artist, you know, the work is always ahead of you. And because I have a practice based research practice rather than a research based practice practice, I really have to be open to encounters with materials and with objects. And so I think that it is about attraction, but it is about trusting that the work is ahead of me. And, you know, most all of the materials that you end up seeing in works that are actually put out there in the world, I often don't fully understand them when I first encounter them. And then, you know, some kind of biographical story will come up where I'm like, oh my God, I use paint cans because my father was a worm picker and he told me that he would strap paint cans to his legs, you know, to pick the worms. And one had sawdust to kind of grip at the worms, slimy bodies. But he told me this after the fact, I bought the paint cans, but I was attracted to the paint cans. So there's often these kind of serendipitous stories that come up afterwards or yeah, I'll, I'll understand them in hindsight, but it is really about I guess, attraction. And it's kind of like a bird making a nest in a way, just gathering things until something starts being formed through their relationship to each other. I have found myself wondering if the through line that runs through the materials you choose to use is tactility and that the viewer will be tempted to touch. Yeah, I think that could be one of them for sure. And and I guess that's, you know, I get I get to touch these things when I acquire them. So maybe it is a very kind of self-pleasure oriented process for myself. I might be wrong about this, but I think most of the materials you use, with a couple of exceptions, are, are things you've had that are, that are basically ready-made rather than things you've had fabricated, you know, paint cans, bowls, stuff like that, is that something has another life in the world and is made for something else and that you're welcoming it into your practice important or incidental? It is super important actually. And yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, the time it might take to assemble an object that's made of mostly pre-existing off the shelf or found materials is really different than the time it takes to encounter and bring into relation those materials and that's something as an artist that I've tried. I've tried the fabrication route of like, like finessing every single aspect of a work. And when an artist, when that's how an artist works and it works well, it works so well. And I can't be that kind of artist, but I am really interested in things of this world and then kind of bending their supposed truths ever so slightly to kind of see them in a new light, like the stainless steel bowls that kind of, you know, become giant surgical trays or Petri dishes or portals or these fleshy colored construction bags that are all over Seoul, South Korea, that become a stand-in for like skin or like layers of skin and flesh in a way. And so, yeah, I think a lot of my practice involves seeking out pre-existing materials and and then trying to find ways to present them where they're kind of 
turned askew a bit or looked at obliquely. Also, it's really about, of course, the materials always point to labor and time that precedes me and my own body and the labor and time I put into the work. And then it also is a way to kind of push against singularity, that it's always a multiplicity of bodies that create the object. I think it's a way to resist that kind of, for me at least, a kind of monumentalizing of the artistic practice by always including objects that are outside of me and that implicate other bodies who encountered them before me. I want to wrap up by asking about a couple artists and how and whether they've been important to you. The first one is an artist I mentioned earlier because so much of what you do seems in such direct, almost pointed opposition, and that's Richard Serra. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about the opposition part. What I like is Richard Serra's verbalist, and I think about it quite a lot in relation to materiality. But yeah, I want to hear more from you about the kind of opposition part. Within Sarah's work, weight is very often an emphasis, and within your work, it rather often pointedly is not. Within his work, the perception of permanence and immutability is, and, and, and the artist's control is everything, and you've rejected that in every possible way at every possible turn. He's focused on verbs. You're focused more on, on kind of adjectives and adverbs and, and a very different kind of word. You're interested in color. You know, we didn't talk a lot about color, but man, there is a lot of color in your work. I mean, Richard Serra must be allergic to color. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh, he, he, you know, maybe you just haven't had the opportunity to work at, you know, building sized scales yet. Whereas, you know, Sarah was doing that, was working eagerly at scale indeed right outside Toronto where you, where you grew up. You know, he, he, he was doing that right away. It just seems like in, in every way, consciously or not, you've zagged where he zigged. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I, yeah, I, I, I like that I've zagged where he's, <laughs> I guess where I see a kinship, if I can say, is there's like a material rawness that's kind of upkept. That's true. That's real. And, and not only in steel for Sarah, it must be said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then it really diffracts from there. I agree that there's this kind of precision and mastery and intentionality is not the right word. I think it is precision rather than intentionality because I'm intentionally imprecise. So I'm not, you know, I'm not consciously pushing against that. I feel like I'm both working within that and also trying to expand that as well, because I guess one could argue that as much control as he had over what he did, there's also a lot of you know, thinking about the public sculptures, there's a releasing of control too in terms of how a body ends up navigating the space or encountering other bodies or interacting with the material or not. Maybe that's being generous in a way. But. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe he came to rue it occasionally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the other artist I wanted to ask how that artist has been important to you is Ava Hess. Okay, before Ava Hess, maybe I can bring up somebody who is maybe within the conversation of Richard Serra, yeah, please. I find more kinship with is Charlotte Posenenske, who also, you know, worked with these low materials, 
the, that I often like to work with some lower off the shelf, highly reproducible materials with the precision. Yes. But I think that when I encounter her work, there's such an openness there, her own kind of biography of moving into social work. You know, there's, I, I can feel that in the work. There's, there's an openness. It feels less monumental, even though she can really take up space or knows how to take up space. So I think that's an artist that I feel a deep kinship with and have long admired. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. But now that you mention it, I can find it. Yeah, I, she was like, I, I fell in love with her work so hard. And I got to see a big show of hers at the Dia Beacon last summer while I was teaching at Bard. And it was it was quite special. And then as far as Eva Hesse goes, yeah, she's also an artist that, like so many artists, I love very, very much. And while the Guggenheim had her show up and it was the first thing that I like ran to see because I think it was the last weekend or something. And it was the most of her work I've seen in one kind of go, really, even though it was mostly that one large work. But I only wish that we got to see what she would have done next, you know, how that interest in these volatile materials would have continued to evolve. Lotus Laurie Kang, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSuvero Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Experience the collision and circulation of cultures through Griselda Rosas's collection of textile drawings and sculptural installations. The San Diego Tijuana-based artist incorporates natural pigments and collage with adopted embroidery skill and inventive imagery to explore themes of inheritance and intergenerational knowledge. Now, through August 2023, see Rosas's first solo museum exhibition at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is the first exhibition in more than a quarter century to examine the work of Robert Motherwell, a major figure who shaped post-war art. Offering new insights into his evolution as an artist and his impact on modernism, the exhibition is organized by guest curator Susan Davidson and features a selection of 56 visually compelling works from throughout the artist's career, including 12 paintings from the Moderns collection. Although Motherwell was equally proficient as a collagist, printmaker, and draftsman, it is Motherwell's expansive sense of painting that this retrospective explores. Beginning with the abstracted figurative works that dominated Motherwell's first decade of painting as he emerged in the New York art world of the early 1940s, the exhibition highlights the depth of his 50-year career. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth from June 4th to September 17th. Welcome back. Next up, curator Apsara DeQuinzio joins me to discuss her exhibition, Adeline Kent, The Click of Authenticity, the first Kent retrospective. It's on view at Reno's Nevada Museum of Art through September 10th. Kent was a leading modernist sculptor whose work addressed nature and the drama of the Sierra Nevada, 
especially within the context of narratives promoted by the Sierra Club and the nascent second-generation environmental movement. Kent is on view through September 10th. The show's fine catalog was published by Rizzoli Electa. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $45 to $60. Epsara DeQuinzia, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Adeline Kent grew up in a prominent and liberal California family, and Kent herself attached herself to the stories the Sierra Club, which liked to believe it was a good liberal organization, told about the construction of the West within the American project. So before we get into Kent's work, what part of her biography and background is relevant to really what she does as an artist? Well, she grew up in the shadow of Mount Tamalpais, and in the book we have a picture of their old family home, which is really nestled at the base of the mountain, and her family is an early conservationist family, early environmentalist family, and and that love for the environment and and specifically her own geographic situation, I think really informs her work and um, inspires a lot of what she did. In addition to her excursions into the high Sierra mountains throughout California, the Sierra Nevada mountain range, and then also other mountain ranges in Nevada and California. So she, she really was an explorer and an adventurer and an admirer of the natural world. Living in the shadow of Mount Tam and family connections introduce Kent to kind of the California nature cult. And, and, and to be fair, her family was absolutely a part of the European-American California nature cult of the time. So how will her interest in nature constructs and narratives inform the work with she kind of begins her career in the 20s and 30s? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It develops over time. So when she begins, she's making very naturalistic, representational work of animals. And so I think that love for the environment is witnessed in all of the animals that she is sculpting. And then women and children. But she's doing it in a very different way than, you know, the classical representation, although I would describe them as classical. But they're not as exoticized in any way. The women are are mostly athletic. And then over time, and it specifically starts in 1940, and we can talk about, you know, the reasons why it, it happens then. By 1945, her work is largely abstract. And so she and her husband often went to the High Sierra during the summer months, but then they were also avid skiers. And so their experiences in the High Sierra became filtered into her work. And they collected a lot of objects and and took photographs and films there. And then those those images and films were used as resource material later on in her work. But then also she collected a lot of rocks and objects. And you can see the the kind of striations or patterns that are on specific objects repeat in her work, like crystal formations appear in the paintings, striations of color or black and white stripes. So all of these, these natural phenomena she's using for inspiration. Before we get to those works, let's live in the 1930s and those figural sculptures for a moment. Two things about them are quite striking. They are made of the earth, they're terracotta, 
and they're quite small. Why terracotta, which I think will become a material familiar to Californians from maybe, you know, the post-war building boom more than anything else, but why, why was she interested in, in terracotta? And then why was she so interested in these kind of, I don't know, vaguely retro-modernist figures? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's like, you know, really her period of development. And um, within the the 20s and throughout the 30s, she is really experimenting with a lot of different materials. She uses terracotta early on. And, you know, I think it was a medium that came very naturally to her. And I think she was also drawn to it because it was a natural material. She made a self-portrait of herself, one self-portrait that we know of throughout her career, and she made that self-portrait in terracotta. And you also see her in that work treating the surface, the material surface of the work as if it was stone so that it looks aged and stone-like. It's not a smooth surface. So I think she is in that early period, really stretching herself and exploring the material possibilities of a diverse range of media, including bronze, different types of stone, granite, travertine, ebony, aluminum. In that first gallery of the exhibition, that is what I think is really striking, is how she is really exploring sculpture and carving and casting in a lot of different media. As you mentioned a moment ago, in the mid-1940s, she rather suddenly, I think, shifts gears. In works on paper, she looks at San Francisco in in a very Paul Clay-esque manner. She looks at forests. And then in a pretty stunning body of work from the 40s that I think deserves to be better known, she abstracts away from nature and land. What prompted the shift? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are involved there. Namely, it's, you know, the onset of World War II. And a lot of artists are coming, European artists are coming back to the United States. And some of those are Stanley Hayter and Helen Phillips, who Helen Phillips was a longtime friend of Adeline Kent. They went to SFAI together. And then Charles Howard and Madge Knight. And they are stationed in the Bay Area. And Charles and Madge take up studios right down the street from Adeline Kent and Robert Howard's studios. And um, they're all very close to SFAI, you know, blocks away. SFAI being the San Francisco Art Institute. San Francisco Art Institute, which was then known as the California School of Fine Arts. And their home, Adeline and and, uh, Robert's home, was literally around the corner from the building. And Robert Howard starts teaching there in 1945. But Adeline Kent went there and studied with Ralph Stackpole. And then Charles and Madge are teaching there. Well, Charles Howard in particular starts lecturing there during the war years. Charles and Madge were, by this point, working in a very abstract style. And they were showing with in major surrealist exhibitions in London and in Europe. And so that that catalyzes abstraction in the Bay Area. The, these new artists who are who are working in abstraction and then now based in 
the Bay Area. But in addition to those artists, and you know, in 1945, you have Jackson Pollock's first solo exhibition at SFMOMA, what was then San Francisco Museum of Art, and you know, Rothko and Clifford Still, these people are all in their milieu. And so and Mata, there's there's so many artists that they were connected to. But, you know, there's there is this influx of artists who are working in abstraction in the Bay Area starting in the 1940s. And so I think that's that is a reason why she shifts. And she and Charles Howard were very close and they corresponded quite a lot through letters. Of course, Clifford still working in the East Bay shipyards, what, in 41, 42, uh, where he begins his shift toward abstraction. In fact, he makes his first abstract paintings while working in as a, as a steel supervisor, which is hilarious, of course, because he had no background in anything having to do with steel. <laughs> there are groups of works of works on paper in the show of Kent abstracting away from, although not really that far away from, rocks and waterfalls. Why rocks? And, and, and there's some of the most interesting works in the show. Why, why rocks and why waterfalls? The, the series that you're referring to is called River Over the Rocks. And then she also referred to them as Cascade. But that is really where I think she starts. That's, the, that's her transitional phase. She does them in 1944. And they, it, you know, she starts sketching mountains and mountain peaks when she's visiting the High Sierra in the summers. And then you can see in in one gallery that's devoted to the High Sierra and infinity in her work, in the exhibition, you can see how these mountain peaks, whether it, at Sapphire Lake, how they become more abstracted as she starts playing with these forms. And so eventually the, the peaks become these kind of column-like forms. And then she starts abstracting this infinity symbol and turning it into lakes and rivers that are streaming down the mountain peaks. And that that specific formation, that infinity symbol that becomes a river that flows down the mountain is really, I think, at the core of her practice. And it's a motif that she uses and applies over and over again in her work, whether it's Finder, kind of her what I consider to be her masterpiece. It's in LACMA's collection or Dark Mountain from 1945, where uh, that's in SFMOMA's collection, where she's punctured this material called magnesite in three different ways so that it becomes like the sloping infinity symbol that's embedded in the mountain. And then there's striations of color around this dark formation that, that resembles a mountain peak. So I, I think that her interest in infinity, and I, I write my essay on this in the catalog, stems from her experience in the mountains and her experience in time and space, but also relates to Einsteinian physics, which was becoming more and more known in the early 20th century. You know, Adeline Kent goes to Paris in 1924, which is a year after Einstein and Bergson have their famous debate in Paris. And so that debate about time and relativity 
and the and the different types of time, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, must have been still lingering in the air. And you know, this is when the fourth dimension is becoming more understood. For so, for me, that in that infinity symbol encapsulates that kind of conversation around space and time that was happening at that moment, but also her own personal experience, you know, resting on mountain peaks in the High Sierra. We'll have an image or three of these on the show page at manpodcast.com. And I think it's clear to see how the exploration of this cascade form from the drawings migrates into sculpture. But before we get to the sculpture, I want to ask one more thing about this cascade form. It's not really a form, but I don't know what to call it. Was it, is it uterine? (laughs) Interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. For me, it it really emblematizes the the rivers and streams and and waterfalls streaming down mountains. She refers to it as river over the rocks and cascade. But yeah, I mean, I can see I can see that that formation in the symbol, possibly, possibly. I think it's also kind of like ski slopes and you know all these sort of natural elements that she's encountering in the mountains. She didn't really reference the body too much in her work, uh, except for in the earlier figurative sculptures. So it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. She's not, I, I mean, I, that, that, that I, I couldn't possibly disagree with that unless of course one thinks those are uterine forms. <laughs> <laughs> the sculptures she begins making in around 1945, Dark Mountain and the works that come after they're an interesting range of things at once. They're a little bit biomorphic, but as soon as you think they're biomorphic, you find a right angle. They're a little bit Hepworth and more, but I can't get a lot more specific than that. <laughs> it, it, it seems she's thinking of natural forms, but is departing when it's useful to her. How have you come in your own mind to contextualize what she's doing in these still often very small sculptures of the mid forties. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I I think there is a lot of biomorphism in her work and, you know, she was close friends with Isamu Noguchi. They had a a rapport and relationship and they wrote to each other and um, visited each other when she went to New York. And, you know, I do see a relationship between Noguchi's work and her work. He was also working in magnesite, which is a material that she starts working in in the 40s, which is a kind of cement material that is cast, but then can also be added to later. And so that work, Dark Mountain and Finder, those are made out of magnesite. And it's it's an interesting material. It was probably not very good for her health. And she suffered from asthma as well, which was another reason why she went to the High Sierra so often because it it was um it was good for her health and her and her asthma. But she was really kind of exploring. For me, it's kind of a hybrid between naturalism and and biomorphism in her work. But she's also trying to capture this authentic experience that she has, an authentic viewpoint. And I think that that infinity symbol, which then gets adapted and repeated 
so often is this motif that is original and authentic. It's something that she created. I haven't seen that really anywhere else, and it's really unique. But but also the pictures that she's making out of hydrocal, which are essentially both paintings and sculpture, those are also incredibly authentic and original and inventive. She's carving into hydrocal, which is a type of plaster, and then painting over it using tempera. And and those pictures are, you know, sometimes they're biomorphic, sometimes they're they're more topical. Like she does a, a portrait of her studio in one, for instance. And then in another one called Journey, I think it's it's kind of a, a painting about atomic energy, in fact. And so the, there are specific themes and, and subjects that she ends up exploring, and she's really kind of adapting her style. But then in, in the later works on paper, it becomes very expressive and fluid. I kind of liken that to Mata and the Dinatin movement as well. So there's a lot actually going on in her work, and, and she's shifting her style throughout. Even as she's shifting, there is still... You know, there, there, there's still uh, an eagerness to paint sculpture, to incise lines in sculpture. I mean, it's it's there is there is some continuity there. You mentioned Journey by Moon. I think it's a 1951-ish sculpture that you mentioned may reference atomic energy and forms. There's also an untitled work from around 1954, which seems to suggest, yeah, that might be putting it too strongly, that recalls anyway, a mushroom cloud. What do we know about her interest in the atomic and nuclear moment? She doesn't really write about it too much. So there is a there's a hydrocal painting called Journey, and then there's also a, a sculpture called Journey by the Moon. Yeah, sorry. So those are two different things. I was referencing the hydrocal painting because you you see this little scientist in the lower corner of this painting, kind of hunched over his desk, and I. I think that it's reproduced in the catalog. And then you have these these sharp angles that crisscross across each other. And then you see this on the upper left corner, you see this train track in the going off into the distance with what looks like almost a mushroom cloud. And so that specific painting makes me think that she is thinking about atomic energy. But again, I think she was she was paying attention to science. You know, many of the Dinatin artists were thinking about science and the fourth dimension in their work. And she was very close friends with all of the Dinatin artists, Lee Mulliken, Wolfgang Pollen, and Gordon Onslow Ford. Although she didn't consider herself a Dinatin artist, but she was most certainly within that milieu. And so I think that that specific work, Journey, ties her to it very specifically. In the last years of her career, she returns to terracotta with great enthusiasm and with forms by the mid-50s that, you know, are not like the biomorphic forms of the mid-40s. They are more elongated. They, I don't know, I wrote in my notes, Castle in the Sky, even though I don't think they look a lot like castles. What was informing these later works and where did this increased interest in kind of a certain elongated verticality come from? Yeah, that's interesting that you say Castle in the Sky because they were actually 
inspired by an experience, a traveling trip that she took to the Mediterranean. And um, they visited the Citadel in Cairo specifically. It's in the uh, Mokotam Hills outside of Cairo, which is the highest point in the, the landscape. And so it literally is a kind of citadel, a castle in the sky. And she made a work called Citadel that was directly inspired by that experience. But all of these terracottas, and they're really extraordinary. I I love this body of work. She made out of terracotta. And after she returned from that trip, she went to Italy. She went to Greece. She went to Egypt. And, you know, she was really inspired by ancient forms of all kinds. And um, she she really wanted her work to have a kind of timeless quality that she identified with these ancient forms. So she made this this entire body of work that was inspired by all these antiquities that she came across. For instance, there's a work called Ear of Dionysus, which was made directly inspired by the Ear of Dionysus in Sicily, which is a tomb. And so she's she's connecting the dots here. There's also a work called To an Ancient God, which almost looks like an amalgamation between three different Egyptian gods in this kind of right angle that appears at the top. It's Seth, it's Anubis, and there's one other that I, I was thinking uh, it also recalled. So, so she is she is referring to these forms in in um, kind of specific ways too. And then she also was commissioned by the Awani Hotel to make lamps. The Awani is the Grand Lodge in Yosemite Valley. Exactly, and her husband Robert Howard made a mural in the early 1920s, I believe. That was in the room, and then her 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 entire family was involved with designing elements of the Awani Hotel in in different ways. Specifically, the Howards, Henry Temple Howard, also designed the floor pattern, which was inspired by indigenous motifs. And so, in the fifties, she the the after the war, the the hotel is being redesigned and upgraded because it was used as a hospital, I believe, during the war. And um, she's 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 asked to make these lamps for the tables. And so a lot of these sculptures were meant to take a candle underneath them as well. So and that was a that was a, a style that she found really compelling. So they're both sculptures and they're kind of functional objects at the same time in the, in that several of them, specifically Sage, was made for the Awani Hotel. However, the works that are appear in the picture of the there's one picture that still exists with with those lamps and and those lamps that are in that picture are missing. We haven't been able to find them. So the only reason we still have Sage is because it was never sent to the Awani. But then there's there's other like lamp models that she makes that where you think that she's she's also developing that body of work. From 1851 on, pretty much everything in California, at least arts-wise, sure, sure ends up back at Yosemite. Epsara DeQuinzio, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.